You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge in their complete lineup of knives and game processing kits. These guys right now are doing an absolutely huge giveaway where you could win an elk hunt. And not just any elk hunt. We're talking about a seven or eight mile horseback ride into the backcountry. We're talking a one-on-one guided hunt. You're going to be sleeping in a wall tent, and you're going to be doing that for five days with the founder and CEO of Outdoor Edge, David Block. Now, if you've never been on an elk hunt before, I'm telling you right now, go sign up for this because if you ever hear a elk bugle, whether it's at 400 yards or it's at 40 yards, it is a life-changing experience. So here's how you enter. Go to OutdoorEdge.com. There's going to be a big banner for it somewhere on their homepage. All you have to do is click on that. Go fill out some information. I think your name, your email address, maybe some other stuff. And that's all you have to do. That's how you are entered. They're going to be picking a winner oh, a ways from now. So you have plenty of time to enter. Go visit OutdoorEdge.com. Sign up today. Here we go. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bears. This week, I'm over in eastern Arkansas with my good friend Brent Reeves and Nick Gilliland. We're at coon camp. We're cooking catfish. We're coon hunting. We're training some young dogs. We're letting some old dogs hunt. And we have an in-depth discussion, and I mean in-depth, about coon hunting. And we break it down. We break it down. This is a beginner's guide to coon hunting because I think that coon hunting is a great point for people to enter into the outdoor world. You're going to enjoy this podcast with my friend Brent Reeves and Nick Gilliland. I want to talk to you about CVA muzzleloaders. CVA has been around since 1971. They have an incredible guarantee on all their guns. If you don't like them, you simply send them back within a specified period of time and they will refund your money. What I want to talk to you today about is their Acura muzzleloaders. Their Acura has a 28-inch nitride-treated stainless barrel and provides a high level of long-range performance without sacrificing balance and maneuverability. 
Like all their Acura Series rifles, they all feature genuine Bagara barrels, which are recognized as being the most accurate production rifle barrels in the world. The nitride treatment hardens on the outer layer of the barrel steel and turns it a rich black color, making these barrels impervious to corrosion. Additional standard equipment on this CVA is their quick-release breech plug, which is basically you don't have to have a tool to break it down and clean it. You also find their Duracite and their Quake Claw gunsling on all their guns. Hey, check out CVA if you're looking for a muzzleloader. These are going to be the best muzzleloaders on the market. We can't have a coon hunting podcast without talking about W Hunting Supply. W Hunting Supply has everything that you need for hound hunting. They've got leashes and collars. They've got Garmin equipment. They've got sport dog equipment. They've got all types and any and everything of what you need for your hound, for your for your for your squirrel dogs, for your duck dogs, for your yard dog. Whatever you need. If you need dog stuff, you need to check out W Hunting Supply. Buddy Woodbury and his team have an incredible acumen for customer service. They do. I was uh, I was a customer before they were partners of this podcast. You're going to enjoy this podcast with Brent Reeves and Nick Gilliland. You know, I hate to start off this podcast with a biology lesson, but I just learned something that I hadn't told y'all yet. Out here, uh, I was skinning this squirrel. Yeah. And did you know, did you know, tell me the truth, that a squirrel has a bacula? Yes. A buck squirrel has a bone just, for his man parts. <laughs> just like the raccoon and the bear. I did know that. It is very small. That I did not know. I absolutely did not know that. It's it's about a quarter inch long. I don't recall ever having a conversation about one, <laughs> but but I did know that. Because skinning squirrels with my dad and coons, and he said they were of the same ilk. Yeah. If I might if you might well, describe it's, it's it that the way. only buck squirrel that I've ever skinned that I noted it. So, and it was it was not of the normal persuasion of a coon. So again, this is a science lesson. Mm-hmm. So this is this is just what we do. And uh, you know, as coon hunters, everybody knows about the bacula of a coon. Oh yeah, you know, it's uh, notable. Yes. So. Uh, I we're in East Arkansas. I was just corrected because we I'd said we were in South Arkansas. Anytime I'm like in swamp country, I feel like I'm in the South, but we're not in the South at all. Right. We're actually in not quite Northeast Arkansas. But if Arkansas was split into quadrants, it would be we would be in the Northeast quadrant. Would you say we we're would, above the halfway mark in Arkansas? We would be in the southern portion of the Northeast part. It's kind of like a legal description. Yeah. We have to be careful describing to people where we are because we don't want them to, to actually know where our secret spot is. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so. That's right. Wait, we're, so we're in the, the northeast, the southern part of the northeast quadrant of Arkansas. Yeah, that's it. And we are, we're at Coon Camp. This is, a, this is a first for me. And I've got Brent Reeves, who's been on here lots of times before. So, Brent, welcome. Thank you, buddy. 
uh, do you have any science lessons for us? Just anything you've learned in the last hour and a half? No. Okay. Uh, All right. Good. Nick. Plumbing. I can I can give you plumbing a plumbing lesson real quick. On what? The three things you need to know about plumbing. Well, go ahead. Hot's on the left. Don't bite your fingernails and. All the bad stuff runs downhill. <laughs> That's everything you need to know about being a plumber. And the hot water in this place is scalding hot. <laughs> yeah. there. It's hog scalding. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got Nick Gilliland. Yes, sir. From Western North Carolina. Yep. I think any state or any place that has a direction attached to it, it's very important that you add a second direction in there to even be more specific so that people aren't confused that there's one Carolina and you live on the north side of it. Are you with me? Absolutely. Western North Carolina. I have come to find out that the folks that live in the two directional states that precede Carolina mm-hmm. are very particular about which one you say that they live in. Right. Right. If they live in the north one, don't say, don't you live in South Carolina? That is a no-no. I understand. Right. No, do not do that. The mountains literally stop the state line. <laughs> no. It's a desert. <laughs> it's, yeah, after that, they just drop straight off. It's a whole different world. <laughs> well, hey, what we're gonna do on this on this session is we we I want to talk to you guys about coon hunting. Okay. You guys are big coon hunters. Um, I want to overall. I, I want to talk about what we're doing here this weekend, but I want to I want to walk somebody through who knows nothing about coon hunting. I think there's a lot of people that are looking for ways to to enjoy public lands, enjoy the outdoors, and so they're exploring options of what they enjoy. And there's some things in life that just seem to have these these barriers inside of them that are pretty dominant and hard to get over, okay? Yeah. Like for instance, if you're a if if you're a golfer, like the barrier to entry to golf is so huge because your life would have to be so in the tubes for you to want to play golf <laughs> to begin that, with <laughs> <laughs> that you would have to be at like that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, there, there's some things that have uh, these strong barriers to entry that if you don't have exposure to them in some way or right. know somebody that does it, you, you would just never know that this was an option for something that you could do. Right. And I think coon hunting, because of its, uh, may, maybe its reputation, maybe I, I find that people, it, you're, either, you're either a coon hunter and know a lot about it or you know nothing about it. Yeah. yeah. And like Brent was saying, the, the people's main exposure <clears throat> to coon hunting is from, who was it? Mr. Wilson Rawls. Wilson Rawls, where the red fern grows. Right. Yeah. Yep. And so that's their exposure. And a lot of people have read that book, and they have this idea of coon hunting. But here's here's my take on it, and this is why we're talking about it, is when I was in high school, I this is true. This is a true story. I foresaw that my family was going to be an important part of my life and that I was going to be a family man and have a wife and have kids. And I thought, you know what? If I'm a coon hunter... I can put those kids to bed and do all the normal things I have to do as a dad, and I can coon hunt after that. I remember having those thoughts when I was a teenager. Right. Like, this is a wise investment to learn how to do. And maybe my dad put that in my mind somehow. I I don't know where that came from. But 
that is my selling point for, you know, as an option. Like, a lot of people are busy during the daytime. Yep. A lot of people are busy. A lot of people have stuff to do. A lot of people have commitments. Um, if you have a squirrel dog, you've got to hunt that dog during the daytime. Mm-hmm. The daytime is valuable real estate on a calendar. Mm-hmm. The nighttime is when a grown man can make a decision to whittle away some leisure time. And, you know, if you yeah. miss a couple hours of sleep, you can do that. Yeah. And you can make that decision and you can you can find this new thing to enjoy the outdoors. Yeah, and you're not using it. You don't have to burn vacation time. You don't have to take that the limited time that you have away from your job that you would need to be spending with your family if they're not interested in going with you. You don't have to take that, burn those hours, and you could be spending them with them doing something at night because, I mean, it's not costing you anything. Right. You can still do the other thing. Yeah, and, you know, if you have a family and they decide to go with you, it's one of those things they can actually partake of. You know, yeah. if you have a young child to take them deer hunting, they have to sit there, be quiet, right? don't move. You know, and all that stuff, but you can tote them through the woods or have them walk with you, and it's no big deal. Yeah. Right. So. Well, and see, that's just so, okay. So, point number one is the time when you do it. You can coon hunt during the nighttime, not as valuable of real estate yeah. except for sleep. Okay. Right. Number two, what Nick just said, um, you, can, you can take people with you, and there's not as big a barrier to entry. Most states, a person that's a participant inside of a coon hunt wouldn't even necessarily have to have a hunting license. Correct. If they're not going to be shooting and partaking mm-hmm. of game, it's a it's a it's a social sport. It's yeah. easy to take people. Everybody has heard me talk about all the hunting that I've done my whole life. I have taken more people <clears throat> and introduced them to hunting through coon hunting than any other thing that I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um number 3 is that the coons happen to be doing really well in the current ecosystem. Yeah, and um, ours especially. Yes. Mesopredators. Have you guys heard the theory on mesopredators? No. Okay. No. Imagine an, uh, 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 basically uh, a pre-European colonization or colonized North America. Okay. Limited human influence. I mean, a lot of human influence, but a lot less than now. There would have been big predators everywhere. Here in Arkansas, there would have been mountain lions. There would have been wolves. Uh, there, there. Uh, well, those were in bears. Those right. have been the three yeah. big main predators. Okay, we essentially, rem- well, we removed mountain lions. We removed wolves. Now we only have bears. Well, the 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 natural order has this vacuum that's created when predators are removed. So the mid-size, the mesopredators increased. Mm-hmm. Coyotes, coons, skunks, possums, mid-size predators <laughs> filled in the void that the the apex predators once filled. And so that's why now the place is covered with coons, coyotes, possums, foxes, stuff like that. So... These are also animals that are not highly coveted by most people. You're right. Am I right? You're correct. So there's a lot of access if you want to pursue finding a place to coon hunt. And now Nick's, I want to hear Nick's story about how he has a tough time in North Carolina finding a place to coon hunt, which is hard for me to believe. Right. I mean, I, I believe you. It's hard. I yeah. wouldn't have known it. Yeah. I, um, so 
point is, is that you're not asking a farmer down here to go hunt his 180-inch whitetail. You're not asking him to go kill his gobbler turkeys. Right. You're not asking to, you know, it's a small ask. So yeah. it's accessible. Public yeah. land, almost all public land we would have in the Midwest would have coons. Right. Um, so it's a... It's a it's it's an accessible thing. Um, I'm 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 building comp- some some ideas for why this is a this is a value thing. Number four, number seven. We're gonna skip five yeah. and six. No, it's North number Carolina, seven. Man. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what number one. You you use a dog in this hunt. I think people that have never used a dog before in a hunting situation. It adds a whole layer of excitement that is totally different than big game hunting. I mean, I love to big game hunt. I mean, I've built my I've built my hunting life around big game hunting. Right. I love it to be able to go from a big game hunt, which is a solo endeavor typically, you know, no, you're not using a dog, to go to this social hunt, a lot of people that can be involved hunting small game you're not trying to kill one coon a year we're gonna this is this is an opportunity game right you know yep and uh and so it's using the dog is just so incredible okay what are you guys thoughts on which part on the on on all and every part all and every part no, I'm just – can you guys think of any other – I'm just trying to build a case, and then we're going to talk about how we're coon hunting. Well, when you talk about access, if you – we always talk about – you and I talk about limiting factors on something enhancing the experience. And and like Nick will explain in a minute the limiting factor he has to deal with out in North Carolina – we actually don't the limiting factor we would have here as far as gaining access to property may be because someone else has already beat us to it yeah because the the landowner the deer hunter the turkey hunter they, these coons are a problem to them you know yeah. where it's legal to 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 feed corn uh you know to deer or whatever to use bait they're they're in competition direct competition with coons coons are a nest predator for turkeys you know, yes. and in Arkansas especially, you you know Clay that the turkey hunting in Arkansas has suffered because of the, of the amount of predators and the predation on on nesting on ground nesting animals. Is it's been tough, yeah, T- to the point that this point number twelve, yeah, that point, we're doing a, a, a service, service, and it's very true, yeah, you know, and it's I mean it's you can tell it, it's and it doesn't take a you know, three, four, or five years study to do it. I mean, you can see, you see more dead coons run up down the highway and then you, and you're seeing less turkeys in the woods and hearing fewer gobblers, you know? Hey, I want to make a comment on that. And I, I really don't want to monologue. I'm going to actually talk to you guys, but I just want to set this preface. Okay. The people that are in the know oftentimes <coughs> will have, have, uh, uh, refute a little bit this idea that coon hunters are actually doing something for conservation by taking off coons off the landscape. Okay, mm-hmm. I talked to uh, I, I corresponded with the uh, <clears throat> Mike Chamberlain, the Wild Turkey Doc, uh, the guy that was on uh, Big Big 
one of the top turkey biologists in the country. Mm-hmm. Right. He he actually did has done an extensive amount of research on coons in the South. He sent me a bunch of, bunch of his research papers that over the last twenty years that he has written about coons, coon mm-hmm. predation, all these different things. So sometimes, like we might wear a chip on our shoulder saying, "Hey, we're we're saving nest predators," and I basically said. Tell me why we're not. Because mm-hmm. I hear some people say, well, you're not really having an impact. Right. These guys, on and basically what I felt like he insinuated, and I'm not putting his words in his mouth, this is what I insinuated from what he told me, is that on a, on a small scale, a coon hunter can make a difference. Mm-hmm. On a macro scale, coon hunters probably can't. Right. Do you understand what oh, I'm saying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because... We hunt on these little bitty pockets of land. Even this ten thousand acre property that we're coon hunting this weekend. Right. That is a speck on the map. Yeah. When yeah. it comes to turkey habitat in the state of Arkansas. So like a like a turkey manager for the state of Arkansas would be like coon hunting doesn't really impact success in turkey nesting because there, it's such a you got to have a really cer- special set of circumstances for you to be able to run a dog on a place. Yeah. It's got to be a big enough place. The landowner's got to be happy about it. Um, and essentially, he was like, "There's no possible way that you're not hurting. I mean, there's no possible way that what you're doing is negative for turkeys." Sure, he said, "I can't prove how much it is, but the way I think about it is if." The one coon that we killed last night, or we killed a couple, if that was the coon that came up on a turkey nest that day, or was going to, and it didn't because it was dead. That's a direct impact. Yeah. And so it's hard for sometimes research science to say coon hunters are saving wild turkeys. Yeah. Are you with me? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to say that there is credible... Understand because what's happening to wild turkey nest is they're getting robbed by predators. Yeah. I mean that is what is happening now. It's a lot of predators. That's what Mike has shown everybody in their research is that it's great horned owls and it's yeah. skunks and it's coyotes and it's possums and it's uh, black snakes eating yeah. a lot of turkey eggs. So anyway, that but that's a good point is that we are doing a service and in certain places and I know from the places I hunt back home. You can thin out coons on a property. Yeah. To where they are hard to find. If you're not making an impact for the whole state, I guarantee you the farmer or the man leasing that particular piece of land, if you've been there for a year or two, could probably see the impact that you're having, at least, yeah. you know. So. Yeah. Nick, tell me about hunting in North Carolina. Like, uh, describe to me the <clears throat> challenges of hunting there. Well, the proof is I'm here and not in North Carolina right <laughs> yeah. now. So, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, is that number one? Is yeah, that going to yeah. be number one? Well, you know, in western North Carolina, everything's mountainous. Um, so the terrain has a big factor in it. You know, um, it's very hard to hunt, just the terrain in general. Everything's laid out different. There's no croplands. Um, these river bottoms and stuff, you know, that you have here, we don't have those. So that makes it more difficult. The biggest issue we have is everywhere – around the house is turned into a retirement community. Mm. Um, well, it used to be where a guy had some bottom farmland and he had two or 300 acres on the mountain too. It's sold off. It's golf course down the bottoms, million dollar homes all over the ridges, gated community. There's absolutely no access. Even if grandpa did 
hunt it, you're not going to get to. Um, say Joe Blow gives you permission <clears throat> for 10 acres next door. One, the property is nowhere near big enough you can run a dog on. More than likely, you're going to end up in the gay community. Laws going to be called, and it's just too much of a hassle. Tell me, let me stop you right there, because a lot of people might have a question about this. What do you think is a big enough property to turn loose a dog on? I I wouldn't turn loose for no less than 100 acres, and that would be a young okay. dog that has started coon hunting. You know, more than likely, if it has coon on 100 acres, you can get something going. But the dog and the dog's probably not going to go off of it. Yeah, more than likely. But if the dog has any kind of experience to it, you know, then I probably wouldn't. Yeah, it, I would need to because he's going to maybe wind one from off. The, he's going to yeah. end up off the property to go find one. Yeah, my experience hound, you know, two three hundred acres because I can handle him well. Yep, I can call him off if I need to, and it won't hurt him to cut him off in the middle of the track because he's experienced. So that that would probably be the minimum for him, but. You know, a young pup, you can get by with 100 acres. And that's okay, just... that's a good answer. I can name you maybe five or six property owners in my entire county that own 100 acres. Wow. You know, so that's just, just... That's a... That is a, a a regional issue because of the population explosion of where you're at in yep. Western North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, that's like where... Man, I tell you, one thing coming from here, going back east and seeing that world over there, is there's a lot of people over there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. more so than what we're used to here in Absolutely. Arkansas. Yeah. yeah, everything we used to have as far as industry was textiles and plants. And then in the 90s, all those kind of went away. And, you know, you get a lot of people from like Charleston, even up north. They moved to the mountains in North Carolina because of the temperature. We got good four seasons. Everything's a little bit equal. You got some good hot summer. You got cold winter. You know, so wherever they're trying to get away from that's out of the, you know, in the extreme, they can find it there. And so now everybody that lives around there, you either sell them their land, you build their house, you mother grass or something. So it's a necessary evil. We've accepted it and we take it in for our livelihood, but we've lost all of our access to natural resources, you know, for any kind of hunting. Well, and that, so therein lies a challenge to coon hunting is finding a place to hunt. And, And that challenge is nationwide i would say yeah like right now where i live in northwest arkansas that would be a similar challenge even though we have a lot of public land Mm -hmm. like 25 30 years ago and beyond you know it was common for farmers to see it normal that they would let the coon hunters hunt their place like you wouldn't even necessarily have to have no permission yeah no it would just be a given oh Coon hunters are in yeah, there. Right. You went down to let's go to, tonight. Let's go down to Clay's farm and turn loose. And it's just like and it was just a well, place he gave you went. permission to Bill. So yeah. I mean, you know, it's he just, doesn't care. It's the coon hunter. Yeah, and and that that would have been common. And I love it. I love it in 2020 when I find people still like that. And the two yeah. places that I hunt are like that. Those guys. I mean, it's like they are just like, well, of course you're going to hunt my farm. Yeah. You're a coon hunter, aren't you? Sure. I mean, that's, that's kind of the way yeah. they look at it. Another and, another thing that he fights out there, too, that he and I have talked about is because of that, you can't go down to Clay's farm and turn loose anymore. All those folks that used to do that are now going to where their state ground is, their public hunting ground. Yeah, yeah. we only have, well, in the county, we have two, two areas of public ground. We have a, a national forest and then a state game land, what we call it. And the National Forest has certain restrictions. You know, they got a lot of access roads. I not understand why, but when season comes in, they shut the gates on. 
Okay. So even if you want to deer hunt it, you got to hike in, you know, into the mountains, miles. And so coon hunting is paying to do that. And what few guys still coon hunt, you know, they're flogging to those areas because that's all they got. They don't have any public land or private land either, yeah. just like I don't. So if you're the last guy to get there 10 minutes after dark, you know, you don't have a creek to turn a dog up. So Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So we're sitting here talking about coon hunting because we uh, we're on a coon hunting extravaganza this weekend, and Nick <laughs> Nick's dog got hurt. We don't even know what happened to it, but Nick hunt he hunted we hunted till four a.m. last night, and then Nick drove his dog to a to a vet two hours away, and you just gotta you gotta leave like right now to go get the dog. Yeah, yeah. Thursday nights when I hunt him, and uh, I guess he got a must run to you think a beaver. Stop. Yeah, that's what it looked like. And just basically hit him right in the chest. And uh, Friday, when we got him out and was walking him, I seen he was swollen. And then, uh, so I left him in the kennel last night. We went hunting, come back, and he definitely got an infection. So I had to drive him to the vet. And it's two hours away, so they just notified me. I got to come get him. So. Well, it, it was awesome having you on here. We were hoping to have you the whole time. So anyway, yeah. you're the first guest to uh, – exit the bear hunting oh, magazine great. podcast yeah. congratulations i get that title no but it's because you're we're in the we're in the heat of it right here yeah and uh you got to go get that dog so nick yeah. hey thanks for thanks for being on and uh I, we hope the dog's okay yeah buddy and, and we're going hunting tonight so yep. you got to drive go get the dog and then we're going hunting again tonight absolutely absolutely so, so. I'll, right, you, I'll be back in a little bit okay all right man brent this is what i would like to do I would like to talk through just a general conversation about how somebody could get started coon hunting. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So walk me through um, what what we're doing when we're coon hunting. Like what because because I shared with Nick yesterday people see like coon hunters posting stuff on social media and they see these dogs barking at a tree. I took a guy hunting one night and he was like, Oh, I thought these dogs were going to be crazy all night long. He had no, he just thought that these were just like wild dogs that just were going to be barking all the time. Like it's going to be a loud and chaotic. And when he saw my dogs were just like pets in the back of my truck. Right. And the only time they bark like that is when they're on a tree or when they're right. trailing. So point being, he didn't understand the, the aspects of what we were doing. And uh, so walk me through what, what you're actually doing on a coon from like the beginning, like, where we go, what time we go, what we do, and then I'll interject and interrupt you. Certain times of the year depend on the time. Dark, we're going at night. I mean, this is yep. a coon hunt that is conducted at night. The time of year will depend on what time of night that you go. Normally, when it's hotter, warmer weather, you will go later because coons, just like people, you know, if it's hot outside, they don't really feel like going out there and doing a whole lot. So usually at the optimum time when it's the coolest part of the night is generally when you get the most activity from coons going, you know, moving around, coming down from their dens, out of the trees. and So they're sleeping during the day and they're moving around at night. As a rule. Most of the time. Most of the time, as mm-hmm. a rule, that, that's, that's the way it goes. 
Right. And so you're going to go and you're going to go to an area where you feel like, you know, there's where coons would be. So you need to be familiar with, with, with what they need, what their food sources are, um, you know, habitat that is suitable for them. So, you know, right. hardwood, hardwood timber, uh, in this area would be, um, any place, um, where there's water, you know, they yeah. like crawfish, they like frogs, tadpoles, uh, but they'll also eat, they want to eat berries and grasshoppers and insects and, and, and you know, their corn, you know, they're, they're hard on a, a farmer's corn patch. Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of places where where they can shop for the the wide variety of things that they eat. They're they are an omnivore deluxe. That's Absol- part of the reason why they've been so biologically successful. Absolutely. And let me distill it down to even like the dummy's guide to where to turn loose your coon dog if you don't know is on a creek, mm-hmm. on a lake, on a body of water. Typically coons are gonna be I would say 80% of the time I'm turning loose on some in some proximity of a body of water. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm in the Ozarks, I'm turning loose on a pond or on a creek. If we're down here, we're turning loose usually along a, you know, a oxbow or a bayou or something. And uh, I'll tell you why. On a farm. So a coon's one of his primary ways of gathering food is in water. Mm-hmm. And they uh, they like to people say coons like to wash their food. They actually don't like to wash their food, but they like to get their hands wet when they feel around on their food to try to it it increases their tactile sensory mm-hmm. ability on their on their hands. Right. Which I have read that a coon has more tactile sensory receptors on his paws, front paws, than any other animal in its class you know i'm not gonna say any animal in the world because i don't know that but in north america so they have this incredible ability to to feel right and so the way the way that comes in handy is at night when they cannot see they use their hands as their eyes basically putting that hand under water so water you're, so you you've got us to where you're gonna go you're gonna turn loose in a place where you think there's coons and pretty much anywhere there's woods there's going to be coons. I right. mean, wherever you live, there's there's there are some places where there are not raccoons in the lower 48, but anywhere in the east and even more so out west, I've got a friend now in Montana that is starting his dog on coons, and I mean, they're finding coons out in the river bottoms in Montana. Sure, but typically it would be in the you know in the eastern deciduous forest, you know, in that section of the world is where they're going to have coons. Okay, so there there we've that's where we're going to go, okay? Right. And then what are we going to do? And now we're not talking about training a dog. We'll go back to that. But, like, what are what are we going to – what what are you doing? Well, when we get there, you know, we're we're going to hopefully be, um, you know, kind of oriented to, to that piece of property or whether we're using, going it off a map, you know, or app on a phone or, or a place that we're already familiar with, maybe a place that we – that we deer hunt or, or whatever, or where we grew up, you know, public land, anything, somewhere that you know that's, that's big enough expanse where your dog, you can turn a dog loose and let it get out and get away from you and start looking for the scent, fresh scent of a, of a coon. And you're going to do this at night. You know, like like I said, when they come down, they come down from the trees and they start looking for something to eat. You want to 
put that dog out there and hopefully he's going to intersect his nose is going to intersect with their track that they've made their scent that they've so, laid down okay is this dog like a bird dog that's going to stay within sight of you or is he going to just range out and go hunt on his own well you know you've got mostly they're going to range out and, and hunt on their own ideally you're going to be able to turn the dog loose when you listen for him when he leaves he, he leaves silently and yep. when he runs across a, a coon track the scent of a coon he's going to do what they, we call open Yep. He's going to open up. He's going to start barking. Yeah. And he will bark, hopefully, consistently or enough that, that you can tell his general direction. Yeah. Now, you know, now we have GPSs and, 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 and satellites that where we can keep up with the exact track of where our dog is and, and, and its relation to the to the Google Earth view of, of this piece of property you own. Right. So it's not as him being as vocal on a track is not as important as it was at one time. It, it's not a, a bark to to run the quarry up a tree, to, to make him go up a tree. It was a bark so you could know where he was at. I see. And so as he's going down through the woods and he's barking and he's, he's letting you know where he's at and then that he is running a coon. He's supposed to be only barking if he's running a raccoon. That's right. Now, hey, you've just tapped into the very definition of a hound. A hound is an animal, or is, is a dog that barks on ground scent. Correct. I mean, or, or that's that's inside the definition of what a hound does. There are other dogs that aren't hounds that do that, but that's that is like hound deluxe. Right? Is he's smelling scent on the ground and he barks? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, let me go back to how the dogs hunt because I don't think it's 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 always real clear. With hunting dogs, like a duck dog is sitting by your side and retrieving ducks. A bird dog is going to be very, have a really good handle on it, meaning that the, the owner can give that dog commands, very specific commands, and that dog will obey. But that dog is always staying pretty close to the owner, ne you know, never kind of like leaving sight of the owner, typically, bird right. dog. These dogs were free casting them. Yes. What you've just described is free casting. And we want a dog that is going to have a lot of hunt in him and go out and find the quarry. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you turn a dog loose and you you just, if we're, if we're hunting that way by free casting, we're just going to turn a dog loose and we're going to sit there. Right. I think that's been surprising to some new people I've taken, Brent, is they're like, well, aren't we going to chase the dogs? <laughs> isn't that what, uh, isn't that what, oh, uh, uh, Billy did on Where the Red Fern Grows. Yeah, followed after him. Well, yeah. Billy didn't have a Garmin. <laughs> exactly. From W Hound Supply, <laughs> Buddy Woodbury. Um, it, no, the, uh, what you just said, them being able to track a dog mm -hmm. by sound, like used to, you would have had to follow the dogs pretty close to stay within hearing of them. Anymore, we don't have to do that. So we turn dogs loose and we just kind of sit there wait for him to go tree or wait for him to strike a track. Right. And uh, so anyway, that's, I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. So walk me through the stages of a track. Okay. Like, uh, like if they open or they strike or whatever they do, or what, I, I would call it strike. Or, mm -hmm. or, I mean, that would be typically what I would say, but right. they're both the same thing. Right. So take me from there. All right. He, he strikes on the track. You know, some dogs after you get to after you know them after you hunt them a while, you can tell 
uh, how hot the track is, and and by that I mean how fresh it is. Right. You know, a, a dog leaving a uh, uh, walking through a place thirty minutes before uh, our coon walking through a place thirty minutes before the hound comes through. You know, that's that's a pretty warm, pretty warm track as opposed to one that came through two hours ago. That would be a cold track. That would be what we'd call a cold track. And you would be in in the way and the, the smoking hot track would be. Yeah, he's he, he was here. 20 seconds ago. Right. You know, the, 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 the puddle or the, the mud that where that coon stepped is, is the water's filling into that track. Right. You know? So it's a hot track. And the, the dogs are going to react different. You're going to get a different reaction from them where a hot track would be a more excited, a more high tempo and, you know, excitable bark as, yeah. a, as opposed to it would be less degrees of that for the colder part of the track or a colder yeah. style track yeah um so the dog strikes a track and he's smelling the scent of that coon on the ground and he's he he very well may be smelling like okay here, here's the other thing i think don't think people understand is at what stage does a coon know it's being pursued by a dog okay like that i think most of the time the, our dogs are striking the natural travel patterns of that coon. Yeah. Like that coon's been wading along that creek, leaving scent on the ground. Then our dogs come in and they they hear they they smell him and bark, and they start tracking that coon. And that coon may be three hundred yards up the creek and goes, "Oh, I hear a dog." Right. Some percentage of coons are pretty much going to probably climb up a tree right then. Some percentage of coons are going to run, but coons are not like this endurance animal like a black bear would be. Correct. Coon, the longest coon races I've ever seen would probably be like half a mile to three quarters of a mile. And, and there have been much longer coon races than that. That's just my personal experience. And that would be a long one. Most of them are 200 yards. Right. And the dog... The dog trails, 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 trails. He's barking on the track, barking, barking, barking. And then when he comes to the tree that the game has gone up, he will do what we call a locate bark, which is an elongated bark. Typically, right. not, all, not all hounds do it. Some of them do it really beautiful. Some of them have a quote-unquote a million-dollar locate. Right. Others may not have much of a locate or a changeover. But so they're barking this irregular bark, and then they – they they hit the tree and it's almost like they're saying he went up the tree. Right. Like me and you were walking along coon track, Brent, and we were like, "There he is. There's his track. There's his track. There's his track. There's his track." And then we see his tracks go up the tree. Would be like, "I just think he went up that tree." Yeah, <laughs> my voice would change an octave. And then once you, the dog is solidified on that, the coon is up that tree. Then it begins to tree. Right. Um, I described to somebody the other day, Brent, about how the reason that a tree dog is so special. See, man, if you just talk to somebody that had no context for hunting dogs or tree dogs, you would say that dog barks at a coon tree. When a coon goes up a tree, it barks. They would not know that that was special. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just like, well, it's a dog barking yeah. on a tree. What's the big deal? What do dogs do? And and we are like, oh man, that's a tree dog. Yeah. Let's dissect this, Brent Reeves. All Listen right. to this. A a tree dog is actually a beautiful 
a beautiful example of the human-dog partnership, perhaps the greatest example of the human-dog partnership, which dogs, which were basically domesticated wolves, if we go back a long time. Right. And humans' partnership with dogs has been a massive part of our success as a species. Right. If we go back to our hunter-gatherer days, the human species has been propped up on the back of dogs, mm-hmm. domesticated dogs that protected us, that helped us hunt, uh, that fed humans at different times when times got rough. It's right. kind of like having a little backup plan if things <laughs> got bad. Plan B. Plan F. <laughs> um, but listen to this. A, a, a natural canine would never have the instinct to stay and bark at a tree while it was pursuing game because that game would have escaped them. And, and the reason he is staying there is because he's waiting for me to come to him. And that has been bred into them by selective breeding. Yes. And it 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 shows a, a it's a partnership dynamic because humans have a way to deal with critters that climb. Yes. It's called bullets. Right. It's called arrows. It's called rocks. It's called opposable thumbs so mm-hmm. we can climb that tree and shake it out. Right. A dog does not have that. So my point being is a wolf, a coyote, a fox, they're chasing stuff on the ground to try to catch it. When it ran up a tree, they go try to find something else that hadn't run up a tree yet. Exactly. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Selective Absolutely. breeding. So it goes against everything natural for a dog to want to stay at a tree and bark. That's why a tree dog is special. Yeah, and it, you know it's a it's the it's the whole volume of of that partnership and 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 what it means to somebody that can really appreciate it is I'm providing that dog's health care. I'm feeding him. I give him a place to stay. Dental, absolutely. The Life whole, insurance, all of it. And I four hundred one k. It's it's been pretty expensive for the one that I've got. So and Nick but, just went no telling how much he spent on no that dog. Telling, no telling. We're gonna what. set up a GoFundMe page for <laughs> Nick Gilliland's dog that he just went to pick up. Exactly. So I mean, and and that dog is also a, a very important part of my family. Yeah. You know, my wife and my little girl are. My, it's a daily ritual when my wife comes home she picks bailey up from school she we, she goes outside sits on the on the back patio and tells my coon dog that he does not have to go hunting if he don't want to he can stay right <laughs> now, who there who does this the, the, your wife or yeah this is alex this is alexis okay. uh, yeah my wife and okay. uh and because bailey goes with me she likes to coon hunt and but it's you know he's just he's a part of the family and it's that that it, it really makes it I mean it's humorous but it makes it that much more special when he does you know he's just a puppy and he's learning so it just makes it that much more special when he holds up his end of the deal you know I I bought him as a as a coon dog yeah uh, it turned out he became a member of our family and through his personality. But yeah. it makes it that much more special what you're talking about when he does what he's bred to do, what his genetic code, yeah. you know, tells for him to do. And it is. Um, it's it's hard for somebody to understand that's not had a dog in the hunt, quote unquote. Right. I mean, there's something like people that are dog people understand it. And, uh, and, and nothing against people that wouldn't be dog people. But point being. There is something that triggers inside of us that is beyond 
rational explanation when we partner with an animal to acquire meat for our family, sure, to acquire and- hides for our family, to acquire wildlife-related commodities. I mean, it's it's like it's like it's almost as elemental as a human's attraction to fire. I mean, and the, the human attraction to fire goes beyond rational explanation of oh, I can warm my hands. I mean, that is something that has has from the very beginning been the thing that has caused us to be successful as a species as well. Yeah, absolutely it has. We have, we have, uh, I was reading in a book the other day, Brent, about, um, this is slightly a rabbit trail, but I'm going back to this kind of like, uh, and when I, when I use the term evolutionary, I'm not, I'm not talking about, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of good things inside of evolution that are just science okay yeah sometimes we've been trained to think that you know anyway there's a lot of evolutionary stuff that goes with fire with goes i read uh uh an apart a high apartment that has a good vista or where we put our trophy homes is up on big hills wherever you live there's probably like high dollar homes up high it's it that stems from our days when humans were in grasslands and to have any sort of elevation was biological advantage. Sure. Like we, we developed this, this sense inside of our genes, our instincts that like to be high is better than to be low. Right. Because when we're high, we can see anyway, I'm saying that a tree dog triggers these same things because what I do is absolutely irrational, Brent. It makes no sense why I drove three and a half hours to come to this swamp to turn loose my dogs. And, and wait around it. in the mosquitoes. I love it. Oh, my gosh, the mosquitoes. <laughs> no, it, it's it, – and the whole point of this whole conversation is is that coon hunting may not be in something that's in people's wheelhouse, but we're going to put it there as an option for people to – to give them an access point. And that's what this whole conversation is about. Okay. Yeah. And, and there's a, to dive into the like practical aspects of like, how could you become a coon hunter? I mean, let's talk about getting a dog. Where, where could people, what kind of dogs are people using for coon hunting? Number one, Brent. Well, it probably the most popular dog and and is going to be a tree and walker. It's, there's probably there's more of those used than than right than anyone or than any, than any other type. But you got tree and walkers, and you've got uh, red bones, um, blue ticks, black and tans, plot dogs. Uh, there's leopard dogs. Uh, I'm not very familiar with those. Uh, English uh, English dogs. Um, cur I think, dogs. I think there are uh, five or six. UKC registered what they call coon hounds. Right. And it's the ones you just named. Mm-hmm. People also use for coon hunting sometimes cur dogs. Right. But most of it is going to be those main breeds of hounds that you just described. Yes. So if you have a lab, it's probably not going to make a coon dog. No. I, no I've had people there's... ask me stuff like that. Well, I've got a I've got a blue healer. You think I could turn it into this? And it's like, well, probably not. Right. And it doesn't say that they wouldn't run one up a tree. But as far as as having a dog that, that if you're looking for a coon dog, that the the ones that we just described there that are that's the area that you want to start picking from. Right. And you know, there's a there's a lot of through, you know, social media and and, and the internet 
and other sources, it, finding dogs are it's pretty easy. Easy. Very easy. Readily you know, available. Finding the right I dog. Bet, I bet we could right now on our phone, Brent, I bet we could do a challenge. Could we in 10 minutes find a registered litter of coon hounds within two hours of right here for sale? Oh, gosh. Yeah. And we, we could, that would be a good challenge. We could do it. Point yeah. is, these dogs are readily available. Yeah, they're they're everywhere. Yeah. For sure. And, and it's, it's, um, uh, in in great abundance, you know, and you've got different different styles. I, all the dogs that are, are bred now are are coming from the competition world. Uh, the the characteristics. And he just found a litter of pups. Did he, Carson? We've got our buddy Carson over here. And he just put, picked up his phone. You find a litter, Carson? Let me see. Okay, let me see. All right. So this is. Uh, this is this was posted yesterday at twelve thirty. This guy's got uh, some tree and walker puppies. Where is this at? Do you know? Arkansas. It's in Arkansas. Yep. Yeah. Well, there's not a place in Arkansas that you can't go be. Yeah, no in, kidding. In two he just, from he where just where proved our point. Yeah, yeah. Because Carson the, uh, Osgood for the win. There you go. So, <clears throat> okay, so you you got your dog right. And, and again, we're just breaking this down bare bones. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you train a dog, Brent? And again, like we're just, you could have their books written about training coon dogs. We're going to talk about tons it in of literature, five minutes. Tons of literature, tons of videos. The best thing in the world to do, break it down as simple as you can. Take a dog that's bred to tree coons to a place where there are coons and turn him loose. Yeah. And you and see what he does. Now you want to you want to be able to control that dog. You know, I started. I got my dog when he was six months old, and the first thing we did was bond as friends and show him I'm the boss. He needs to do what I tell him to do. That's the way you did with me too. That yeah, and you've never done it. It's it's never took. So I'm gonna have to up the amperage on your collar the next time. <laughs> the next time we go train. Most dogs are started when they're about. 10 to 12 months old yeah nine nine to 12 months old is the window when you're going to start kind of hunting the dog yeah and you and you're talking about a process now and an investment not only in money but in time because there are there are some of the greatest dogs in the world never started treeing until they were two years old or older yeah so i mean you're that's that's a lot of trips in the woods where nothing happened the way you wanted it to happen yeah and we talk about it um, a lot. Nick and I do on our podcast, and with Steve Fielder, is that the 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 best thing that you can have is patience when you're training one of these dogs. And so it, it's a it's a big investment. Uh, and if if you're wanting to do it yourself, from a puppy up to the finished part, you know it's a project and it's a it's a long grind. Now the thing to do if somebody's wanting to get into it right away, you know they're started dogs. You can buy a started dog. You can buy a dog that someone else has already put the time in to getting that dog started, where he's not where he's he's hunting for coons when he leaves you, and he's doing what what you want him to do uh, when you tell him to. He's right. not running deer. He's not running po- tree and possums or bobcats or or anything. Oh, we other, like him to tree bobcats. Other or other than than a coon. Where legal? And uh, but you know those obviously are going to be more expensive. Well, the so w- when you're talking about training a dog, you have this dog that has a natural instinct to tree a coon. Right. 
That dog also would have the same natural is- instinct to run a deer. Sure. Or so a lot of people don't understand that is that just because you have a dog that's bred to be a a, a coon dog to tree coons does not mean that he's not going to have that a similar desire to chase other games. So basically, right. you're you're trying to whittle them away from off game, and so you you reward them for good behavior. And then you discipline them, and by discipline that could mean many, many things. Yes, usually very light, which would be like no reward for bad behavior. Yeah, reward for good behavior, zero reward or negative reward for bad behavior. And over the course of a period of time, like my scooter dog, mm-hmm. he's ten months old. Over the last month, I think I'm seventy percent towards turning him on just coon right like he, he'll still run whatever but he has learned that there's a big reward for tree and a coon mm-hmm. he because when he gets to the tree he sees my excitement my praise of him and when we shoot a coon down he gets to see a coon right. when he runs a deer he gets nothing right the deer runs away from him he gets tired he gets no reward from me. He doesn't get to smell that deer's fur. Right. And eventually, as he's older, I might find other ways to discipline him for right. running a deer. But he, he usually it's positive praise. Yes. It's the positive that makes him go, man, why would I want to run anything? But And so just over time, it's almost like a miracle. Well, you just, a your dog's, dog's pretty straight. Uh, their inherent uh, desire is to please you. Right, you know, and and I've always said that uh, a dog is only a, if a dog is everything is equal, and you've got a well-bred dog that knows what he's supposed to do, or he has the desire to do what what he's bred to do. The limiting factor for that dog is the man that's handling him, or the lady, or whoever mm-hmm. is the person handling that dog, because if you cannot explain or communicate to that dog what you want him to do then it's not his fault it's yours so and that has always been something that that when i'm correcting a dog or praising a dog is he understanding what i'm wanting him to do and if if when he's treating when he trees a coon and we see the coon and he knows the coon's there whether i knock it out to him or not and i love him up and i praise him and he you know he's the best boy ever and we're, we're doing a little i'm petting him and, and praising and rubbing him and everything there at the tree and then we leave i mean you can tell in his demeanor he's ready i want i want to experience that again i want yeah. to do that again or if he goes somewhere and we can't find the tree or we, we he trees and we can't find the coon and it's uh maybe it's slick it uh what's called a slick tree where you can look on every limb and there's not a there's not a coon the there. The dog just messed up. He missed him. You know, he missed he, it. He treed, but the coon wasn't the there. The coon he wasn't messed there. up. That's right. what called the slick tree. You just go up there and you put your lead on him and you drag him or you pull him away, you walk away and you turn loose again. And and in that experience he maybe the scent wasn't hot. For whatever reason, he's got to do a little deductive reasoning that what happened just then was not as fun as when we saw the coon. You know, the coon got knocked out or I was praised on the on the previous right. So and, and it's repetition. It's the same thing every time. Every time you go, and it's not a. It doesn't happen in a month. Like I said, it could be years. You know, year and a half, two years. However, 
Now, wouldn't wrong. you say you'd typically expect to see? I don't want to paint the picture too negative, even though what you're not negative, but too extreme. Uh-huh. I mean, you like your dog is a year old and he's already treeing coons, right? So now to get a finished dog, mm-hmm. you're gonna get that two year plus. Yeah, but I mean, like you're already having a ton of fun and excitement oh, yeah. with a year old dog that's tree tree and coons on his own. Well, I've taught you know, I've, so I don't want it to sound it, like you know there's two years old before you're doing anything. And it's fun. all what what you what you, how you look at it. You know, every day, every time that I go, he doesn't tree a coon every time I take him. Yeah, you know, but if he does what I tell him, if he hunts like I want him to hunt, if he if because you know I've got no control over whether or not coons are coming down and crawling around on the ground, I can't control that part. The only thing I can do is try to prepare my dog the best I can, take him to the place where I think they are at the time they are, and turn them loose. But if if that dog does what I want him to do when I turn him loose, that's a it's a positive thing. Yeah, you know. And when I get him back at the end of the night, and I know he's been out there and he's tried, and he hadn't run deer, and he hadn't treated a possum, and you know he he hadn't disobeyed me when and when I called him back, maybe he was getting close to a road, you know, and I. I give him a tone on the collar, um, and or I called him right. verbally, you know, and 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 he come back to me, you know that those are all positive positive things, and, and yeah. when he gets back to me at the end of the night, I'm gonna love on him and pet him and praise him, you know, just like I would if he had treated coon, because mm-hmm. that progression every day is just you're building the foundation, putting all that stuff, building that base layer of that, you know, I'm. The dog's thinking, I'm. If I do these things, I get the reward. Yeah, you know. And then the 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 gravy on that biscuit is when he's treeing coons by mm. himself consistently. Love the metaphor, Brent. That's it, man. The gravy on that biscuit. Yeah, the hunt is the biscuit, <laughs> and the coon hey, is the gravy. The the other thing that people, I mean, the main way that we would train a dog to Brent is by taking it with an older dog. Yeah, and I, I can't minimize that. In any way, like the way I'm training my dog Scooter right now is taking her with a broke, finished coon dog. Right. And so that dog begins to, the young dog begins to hunt with the old dog, the old dog trees, the young dog comes in and is like, hey, what's he doing? Right. And and over time, they kind of just merge into doing what a good dog is going to do just like they would merge into doing what a bad dog was doing too. Yeah. If you had a trashy dog that's running deer, your pup would start running deer. Sure. So there's a, probably the hardest limiting factor for somebody that's never coon hunted that doesn't have a connection to coon hunting is what, how are they going to find somebody? And and that's just one of those uh, social challenges that somebody's just going to have to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, there are coon not, hunters all over the country. You know, I, I was in a, I was very fortunate when after I bought my dog, I'd, I'd had him maybe three or four weeks, and I'm outside in my driveway cleaning out my my dog box, and a man that I'd never met in my life, Rex Whiting, drove up in my driveway and said, "Hey, what are you you going to think?" He said, "The first thing he said to me is, you're going to think I'm crazy.' Well, I didn't think he was crazy then, but I do now. I, it's confirmed. <laughs> but he said, "There's two kinds of people that live around here where we live." And that is duck hunters and coon hunters. What kind of dog are you putting in this box? I said, a coon dog. <laughs> and from that conversation right there, 
we have become really good friends. Yeah. It turns out, you know, he's got an older dog. Just what you're talking yep. about, an eight-year-old dog. All you had to do was have a dog box in the back of your truck. And that's all it took. And I was fortunate enough. Man, that just shows you how willing people are. Sure. I so mean. They're out there. But yeah. it's not. I, I say that statement to say this. It's not impossible to do it by yourself. That's right. You know, it's just, it's going to be harder. And, and And Rex not only is there. His dog is not only helping my dog, but he's helping me. You know, he's yeah. helping me read that dog yep. and telling me through his experience, this guy's got tons. He's been hunting forever. Hey, when I when I started training mules, I didn't know much of anything, and I watched YouTube videos to learn how to train a mule. Okay? I That could only take me so far. And my friend Darren Wiles, who's uh, Darren's probably in his 60s, he was coaching me through just like over the phone different things about my mule. I'd tell him what was happening, and he'd tell me this, yada, yada. We went back and forth. Well, one day Darren said, hey, I'm, I want to come over, and I'll help you work your mule. I watched Darren Wiles for five minutes in that round pen with my mule, mm-hmm. and I Bam, I got it. Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. It, it, it wasn't what he taught. It wasn't like do this and do that. It wasn't like a technique, but I watched his demeanor with that animal. I watched how he demanded its respect. I watched his posture, and I was like, oh, that's training. Right. I get it. And that translated a whole bunch of other stuff. I say that to say I have been with a houndsman before that – the same experience happened. Like I'd just been turning dogs loose. Like when I, in phase one of Clay Newcomb's coon hunting career from age 14 to age 21, I was just taking coon dogs, quote unquote, and just turning them loose. Mm-hmm. And they'd go tree a coon and I'd go shoot it out. And we just did that as much as we could. I never had right. great dogs. When I, when I was an adult and got back into coon hunting, I went with uh, Danny Drummond, my friend Danny Drummond in Northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a couple of things he told me to do, and it wouldn't have even been anything specific. It was Fern. when Fern, I was training Fern, and right. Fern was running something that the old dog that he had wouldn't run. And I didn't know if I should go discipline Fern because we knew it was off game. Right. And he said, I'll just let her run. And I said, really? And he said, she's just a pup. She's eight months old. Just let her run and you know that that trash track as we'd call it fizzled out and fern came back and went and treed a coon with the old dog eventually you know like the old dog treed and fern was there right and i learned okay you don't have to demand perfection this is kind of a long-term thing and he was like i like it that your dog was running anything and i said oh really okay and then the next time we went Fern absolutely burned the hair off a deer. <laughs> and he said, I like what your dog just did. And I said, really? And he said, man, she ran that deer like she meant it. And I said, okay, got it. Like it, like he, he liked the desire. And he said, you can, you can work with that, her running a deer later. Once she starts treeing coons and you start praising her for that. Yes. And she knows that life is good when you tree coons. And point being, 
going with somebody can mean a lot. Yeah. You can learn a lot quick. The exact same lesson. I got that exact same lesson from Rex. He told me, he said, look, he said, the hardest thing to do to teach a dog is to go hunt. He said, if you got one that'll go out there and do that, you're you're way ahead of the game already. Yeah. He said, if, if he's chasing deer, it don't matter what he's doing. If he is chasing another animal out there, regardless of what, what you want to do, you can teach him not to do that and stick to coons. He said, but if he's running, running game out there, deer or whatever, he said, you know, you've got something, you've got a place to start. So you're right. already ahead of the game. Yeah. So, you know, I think the main the main thing we wanted to do was introduce people to the idea that they could be a coon hunter, mm-hmm. the idea that this is a family sport, the yes. idea that the, the 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 game regulations are liberal. Anywhere you want to coon hunt, the, the game regs are pretty liberal. Right. I mean, like high bag limits, long seasons. Um, your challenges are going to be finding a place to hunt. But if you're in a place with a lot of public ground, you can probably do pretty good. Mm-hmm. I pretty much have three farms that I hunt on private ground for coon, and that has serviced me well for years. Three farms. One of them's 300 acres, one of them's 600 acres, and one of them's 244 acres. Right. Okay, that gives you an idea of the size farms that I'm hunting. And uh, all those do me good, plus my public land and, like, come down here for a weekend and hunt with you guys on some of this big these big tracks of land down mm-hmm. here um so th- 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 the way so this is not meant to be like the full resource vault of coon hunting but you guys have that you have a podcast brent I do. that's all about coon hunting tell me about that just a little bit nick gilliland and steve fielder and i uh do a podcast called the nightlife nation and it's all 100% coon dogs, coon hunting, anything related to it. Competition, Steve is a, uh, gosh, I would almost say world-renowned, but yeah. I, I don't know that that wouldn't For be. For sure, nationally renowned. Absolutely. Because there's not much, nobody else cares about coons. Far, but as far as I know, Steve is the only guy that has ran all the coon hunting registries, AKC, PKC, and the UKC, that has, has worked at all three places. And uh, just a vault of information about competition hunting and and the lineage of, of legacy of historically great dogs and, and good coon hunters and just a, a wealth of information. He handles all that stuff and uh, and and Nick is a, a an accomplished uh, dog trainer and and hunter from North Carolina. Uh, you know, Nick's just a good guy. He's just man. a good guy, man. And he likes to help he, people. He loves to hunt. His mission, he's always talking about how can we help, you know, the folks that are listening. And that's that's what we do. He he came yeah. up with the phrase of, you know, we want to do something that's that's educational, entertaining, and help people evolve, you know, getting better in, in this in this business of, of Kuna in the sport of it. And he's not a competition hunter. And, you know, I've never been to a competition hunt. I look forward to going some, you know, and trying it out. But the, the joy of just having a dog and, and going out and doing, you know, hunting pleasure hunting is, is what, what drives us. And we, and Nick's in North Carolina, Steve's in, in Florida and I'm in Arkansas and, we put out this weekly show where we just Nightlife Nation podcast. Nightlife Nation podcast where we just sit around and we talk about it. And we talk about uh 
training tips yeah. uh, and the progression of our dogs. We've all got three pretty young dogs that uh, that we're training, and um, people have shown a lot of interest in, in following how how their progression is and the uh, the techniques and stuff that we use to to, to make them better. And and we it's just a, a fun family affair. Um, we usually tell a a story at the end of the of the podcast of a personal experience someone had humorous or or, or otherwise that is uh, you've never had anything funny happen to you. <laughs> oh dude we got to close this podcast with me talking about my story i think you know what story i'm talking oh, about oh yes yes <laughs> I got, god bless america no no I, i'm not close i'm just i just that's, that's why i want to close it, it. Okay. When, when we do we will cue the uh eagle the cue the eagle cry yeah, yeah. But anyway, it's uh, it's just it's yeah. Fun. So check out Nightlife Nation podcast mm-hmm. if you have any interest in this kind of stuff because, you know, I think Brent, this may be our hundredth podcast, maybe ninety nine. Right. This one that we're doing right now, and and we've talked about coon hunting just a handful of times. Right. So I mean, my our, we're not trying to educate the world on coon hunting. You guys are. Yeah. And so, uh, if you if you have interest in becoming a coon hunter. This is these guys have a, a great resource and it's just a palatable, family oriented podcast. A lot of fun, a lot of information. You listen to two or three podcasts and you'd get the lingo of coon hunting, right? You know, part of uh, entry, uh, barrier to entry sometimes is people just not understanding stuff. Like we say the word treed, well, they don't know what treed is. You say hot track, they don't know what a hot track is. You say a walker, well, they don't know what a walker is. Yeah, and they we say actually, this or that. Yeah, we actually did like three episodes where we did three a uh, segment in three episodes of going through terminology. Yeah, of, of what they were, you know, competition terminology and just regular coon hunting terminology. So, yeah. and we got and a lot of response came back that you know that was people if people found it really helpful and it's it just inspires us to to do more yeah we're getting it's it's great it's a lot of fun yeah so yeah that's uh i've I've been enjoying it um hey two things i want to end with i want to end with the story Mm -hmm. and we're going to build this story up because it was just (laughs) incredible okay um secondly i always i always want I, i feel this need deep in my bones to talk about why we do what we do. Uh-huh. And we've already talked about part of the conservation aspect of coon hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, though, did you know? I'm going to tee you up for a question. Okay? All right. I'm going to tee you right up. Okay. What is the most economically important fur-bearing animal of all time for North America? A. Beaver. Beaver. B. Raccoon. raccoon. C. American bison, D, coyotes. <laughs> okay, what is your answer? And the, to repeat the question, the most economic, like, like which one has the g- most gross economic sales of all time in North America, going back to the 1700s when the French came over and started trapping, fur trapping. Ready to go. Raccoon. Teed him right up. You're exactly right. How could I have ever guessed? That's right. Uh, I, I would have thought uh, beaver, 
uh, because you hear about the high prices yeah. that Beaver bought in the West was the expansion. The, the European expansion yeah. West was fueled by the Beaver, right? But the Beaver fur trade, Brent Reeves, was pretty much from about the late seventeen hundreds to about the eighteen thirties, and in about fifty years, they trapped those suckers out. Yeah, the end. And then from then on, it was raccoon pelts mm-hmm. for a hundred years. From 1830 to about 1940, well, 150 years, to the 1980s. Right. From like the 1830s to the 1980s, coon hides dominated world fur markets. Yeah. And so the reason that this is important information is that we are, we're, we're coon hunting for hides. People do eat raccoons. Yes. They do. We do. Yep. But it is not the primary reason that we hunt coons. No. We're hide hunting. And that is that fits inside the North American model of wildlife conservation because there's multiple things that we're tapping into. We're tapping into an overabundance of a natural resource, which is scientifically – I read that in a research paper that uh, Mike Chamberlain sent me, uh-huh. Brent, because I've always said that. I've always said – that coons are over uh, – the, the population of coons currently is unnatural right. for recorded history. That is true. Absolutely, it is. So we are we are tapping into from a de- like a depredation standpoint. We're trying to lower coon numbers. So that's number one. But then number two, fur, high, fur prices aren't worth that much anymore. But there's still uh, – there's still – traditional usage patterns of coon hides like right, what i'm doing these days is all the coons that we take especially during the prime winter months i'm getting those hides tanned right and giving away as gifts and oh it's a, it's incredible i mean the coolest thing in the world is going to be to have a buddy of yours that's a coon hunter and you get a full tanned coon pelt for christmas oh yeah for real they're beautiful um, yeah and so the the hides and and when we've talked about eating them and they they're it's great meat um and we've we've had it a lot of people use it uh but it's not the main reason we're doing it there's a lot of animals that it is the main reason and i think sometimes people don't understand that or they might have a hard time with it but don't you don't have to have a hard time with it because this fits perfectly inside the north american model of wildlife conservation yes they, we are removing meso predators off the landscape but we're also utilizing a commodity off that animal. Mm-hmm. So, coon hunters, man, that's what we are. Okay. Glad to be one. Story. I was coming here, Brent, yesterday. I was uh I drove three and a half hours to get down here for Colby, we didn't even talk about our coon weekend. Colby has got to put in some background patriotic music. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just a music bed, Colby a little. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Be great. Here, oh, I hear it. There it goes. There it goes. It sounds good. Good job, Colby. <laughs> that's it. Do you hear it now, yeah, Brent? Oh, that's yeah, that's it, right there. That's it. I was coming here and I was in downtown Fayetteville, Arkansas. And now most of you never been there and probably will never go there. But imagine in your city, the most, one of the most busy intersections in your city. And I was on a major interstate that runs through this very populated area of Northwest Arkansas. I got off on an exit to go wash my truck because I didn't want to come down here with a dirty truck. There's a construction crew working like right off the exit ramp. So there's just people everywhere, cars almost, not bumper to bumper, but, you know, just people everywhere. Right. 
I see a bald eagle. <laughs> a bald eagle. <laughs> the size of a Cessna airplane. <laughs> swoop down out of a bluebird sky. And pick up a freshly roadkill <laughs> fox squirrel. Now, why there was a fox squirrel on the interstate off-ramp, that I don't know. Right. But it was a big, glowing orange fox squirrel. He swoops down right in front of my truck, picks up the fox squirrel, and then just flies off like a boss. <laughs> like the rocket's red glare. <laughs> there was a guy right behind me driving a Toyota Tacoma. Sometimes when you're in like big cities and you see somebody that's driving, they, they give some indication of you have like a little bit of a cultural connection right, to them. Right. You kind of like like hat tip them, you know. Yeah. And this guy had a Toyota Tacoma. You know, I could tell this guy was like, I mean, probably on the same page as me in terms of like, just. He digs the outdoors. Probably. Yeah. And he pulled up right beside me, and he I knew he had to see it because he was right behind me. And he looked at me with a big grin on his face. <laughs> I looked yeah. at him with a big grin on my face, and both of us knew that we'd seen something special. Yeah. You'll always have that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, the eagle story. Yeah. Eagle and the fox squirrel. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be re- retold for you. That'll be on, that'll be on a cave drawing. You should paint that picture Etch at the world the, headquarters. That, yeah. That's going to be awesome. Well, thanks, Brent. Man, I hate I hate that Nick had to leave. It was kind of an odd deal. We didn't know when he was going to get the call about this dog, yep. and he had to go. So, And we don't want to leave folks hanging. We, we think he's going to be fine. He's just, yeah. he's going to, he just got fixed up, and, and he'll have, have him back here this evening, and we'll, he probably won't hunt tonight, and he'll go back home. And, get well and be good to go well hey we're gonna we're gonna hunt we're gonna fry some fish and then we're gonna hunt again tonight absolutely all right man we'll keep the wild places wild because that's where the coons live sure do